Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. We have a very special guest for you this week. His name is Stephen Jenkins, and he is the director of the recently opened Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In May, I had the good fortune of being invited to the opening weekend festivities for the center, which were spectacular, included a gala dinner and celebratory concerts by Elvis Costello, Mavis Staples, and Patti Smith, none of whom I had seen live before, so it was a threefer for me. The 15,000-square-foot center in Tulsa's Arts District isn't that huge, but the execution of, in this museum is just stunning. Uh, walking in, you are greeted by a 16-foot-high abstract metal sculpture made by Dylan himself at his Black Buffalo Artwork Studio, and from there, it only gets better. We'll talk about all that in a sec. Let's talk about Stephen Jenkins for a moment. He brings an impressive resume to his new job. He's held leadership positions at nonprofits in the greater San Francisco area, including the University of California Press, Glide Foundation, San Francisco Film Society, San Francisco International Film Festival, Frameline San Francisco International LGBT Film Festival, San Francisco Cinematheque, Film Arts Foundation, and the Ansel Adams Center for Photography, which I've actually been to. It's so beautiful. Uh, as an arts journalist, uh, Jenkins served as the editor-in-chief of Art Week and Bay Area City Search and senior editor of C, a journal of visual culture. He's contributed to a number of magazines, including New York, Out, California, Detour, SF Camera Work, Photo Op, and Publishers Weekly. He's also the author and editor of a couple books about photography and film, so quite the resume. But enough me. Let's hear from Stephen Jenkins about who he had to kill to get this job, how he's enjoying Tulsa, and what his favorite Bob Dylan song is as of September 2022. Steve, welcome to the show. It's a thrill to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Duff, and thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here and chat with you both. At the present moment, traveling town to town, the mystery of the motion, right here, right now, right here, right now, whoa, right here, right now. So uh, as a diehard and lifelong Dylan fan, uh, the idea of being the director of the Bob Dylan Center is is kind of makes me want to quit everything I do and come out there and 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 compete with you for that. How did you get involved with this project? Duff, How are you, you still bitter? In? Are you still bitter about not getting the job? Bitter at Steve. Yeah, this is this interview is a hack job. We're going to take you down and get you fired. How'd you get it? Things got get- off to, uh, to a good start and then suddenly <laughs> took a strange turn. Uh, yes, I, look, I, I admit, I feel like, you know, I call myself the, the luckiest, well-qualified guy uh, because it, it is a dream job. But I do feel that my uh, my so-called career, uh, as you outlined it in the San Francisco Bay Area over you know about 35 years, really has prepared me well for this. Uh, so it was a combination of being a lifelong Dylan fan 
I suppose I was a somewhat precocious six-year-old who would rifle through the record collections of my older brother and sister, as well as my very hip mom, who always was into great music. Uh, and I discovered Bob Dylan's greatest hits, uh, you know, that, that album that I think everyone had in their collection, even, even if they didn't have, you know, all the studio recordings. Uh, but that, that first greatest hits album uh, seemed to be in every household in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, where I grew up sort of the, the Spielbergian suburbs uh, where, you know, great music would, would poke through. Uh, and there was something about the album cover and also the poster that was included with that album, the, the Milton Glaser, uh, you know, rainbow haired Dylan in profile. It's become a very iconic design. Uh, I know that that really attracted me. I, I, I know the voice resonated with me. I'm not sure what I made of those songs at the time, uh, I don't know if I got the single, let alone the double entendre of something like Rainy Day <laughs> Women, uh, but I, I was captivated. And, you know, like, like all of us, you know, you grow up and certain music stays with you and you get introduced to other things. But Dylan was just always a constant. And I think it was by, by around 1983 when Infidels came out, that one really grabbed me and my group of friends and we would pour over uh, you know, Joker Man, and look at that video for it that came out at the time, which was, you know, rife with with biblical and literary references and allusions, and we would try to parse out the meaning of all of this. And from there on in, it was just, you know, every album, I, you know, pick it up the day it was out at the local record store, uh, and, you know, became a, a Dylanologist uh, uh, in my own way, uh, like we all do. Um, you know, and, and then music has just always been a constant, um, as was nonprofit arts and culture work. And so I learned about this project in its formative years. I had heard that the Dylan Archive had been acquired by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a, an amazing philanthropic force here in Tulsa that's done so much good for the city. They had already acquired uh, the Woody Guthrie Archives and opened the wonderful Woody Guthrie Center. Uh, and then uh, set about uh, acquiring the Dylan archives, uh, got them in 2016. You know, this was a surprise, I mean, uh, or an unsurprising surprise in that no one knew much about Dylan keeping all these materials, you know, as much as Dylan gives of himself, of course, he's famously private about so much. And sure enough, he'd been holding on to things, this trove of materials, uh, which constituted about 100,000 items all in. And uh, as I said, these were acquired, and I read about this and knew some folks uh, associated with this project. Uh, so I'd been following from behind the scenes, never having any clue there'd be a role for me here. Um, but as it became a uh, time for the Dillon Center to be constructed and to open, and as a staff started to build up, um, I got to talking with some of the principals here. And uh, this was even before an official job description was out. They decided that they indeed, indeed did want to find a director for the center. I threw my hat in. And over the course of many months of, you know, pandemic era Zoom interviews and phone calls, uh, and then I finally came out here to Tulsa in person. And fortunately, all sides uh, seemed to agree that uh, I, I was the guy for this job. Uh, so uh, that's the, you know... The, the shortest version of, of how I ended up after 37 years in the Bay Area, upping and moving with my husband and our dog to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And how is Tulsa treating you? How's, how's the transition been? 
Tulsa is terrific. I think it's less of a culture shock than I anticipated. I admit to having some stereotypical views of what I would find out in Oklahoma, uh, though I was assured, you know, I'm a look, a lefty liberal from California who lived in San Francisco from the you know late 80s on. And I'm shaped by that mindset and that experience. Uh, and I was uh, anxious, I'd say, about coming out to what I knew was a very, very red state. Uh, but Tulsa, I will say, is the, the blue bubble. It's the Austin, if you will, of, of Oklahoma. And I feel very at home here. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, you know, not, not only the job and how exciting and rewarding it is, but uh, this is uh, turning out to be a, a really lovely place to live and put down roots. You know, we bought a house. We are absolutely committed <laughs> uh, to, uh, you know, uh, playing a role here and, and hopefully contributing to what really feels like, as a newcomer anyway, uh, a, a very positive time in this city with a, a lot of potential and a lot of a lot of movement, a, a, a rich arts and culture ecosystem, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, and and quite a bit going on. You know, you mentioned uh, the the Kaiser Foundation and the Woody Guthrie Center, which is you got, you share a city block with it. Um, and during the opening, at least, I don't know if it's still there. There was a Springsteen exhibit in the Woody Guthrie Center. So in a weekend, uh, as a visitor, one got to go through uh, Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and Springsteen. And it's almost, it's difficult for me to think of, at least in the singer-songwriter tradition, um, it, you know, a, a, a better three-way uh, historical display of, of uh, what American music's all about. Do you... Um, it, it, it seems to me the sort of sense of history you must experience going through there all the time must be profound. It sure is. I mean, look, we have Guthrie who, you know, arguably uh, one of the most important voices, you know, literally and figuratively in the first half of the 20th century, whose influence and legacy live on and, you know, have just increased over time with subsequent generations of of musicians and activists uh, embracing uh, uh, Guthrie's ethos. Certainly Dylan, you know, the very first original song he wrote, Song for Woody. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's a part of why uh, I, I think Dylan agreed that Tulsa was the, the, the right uh, place to have a permanent home for his collection, is that affinity for Guthrie. And of course, it's the same organization that runs both centers. So there's a, a lot of um, symbiosis there. Uh, to add Bruce to the mix, you know, for me, and I'm sure for, for you guys and so many of your listeners, just another absolutely towering figure, you know, plays a very, very pl prominent uh, role in my own personal pantheon. Uh, I, you know, to have it all here, it's very heady. It's, it's very exciting and invigorating. Uh, you know, I walk into that temporary uh Springsteen exhibition as much as I can, given that it's right next door, and it's only up for another couple of weeks. So I, I implore listeners to come out and get here before September 26th, if you at all can, uh, to to celebrate Springsteen. In this case, particularly his live work, you know, his legendary concerts. That's the mm -hmm. focus of that exhibition. So to have that performance footage here, to to see you know Bruce on the 1978 Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. Uh, to, to experience the Woody Guthrie Dustable virtual reality experience at the Guthrie Center, 
to come over here and scroll through a touch screen and see and read 10 different versions of the lyrics to Joker Man. And, you know, and I could switch up those three things for three other examples that you could draw from these different um, source points. It, it, it's, uh, yes, as you say, you're steeped in a certain vein of Americana uh, that, that to me exemplifies the, the best of what uh, this, this, you know, potentially failed experiment of a country can, can, <laughs> can offer up, uh, you know, three utterly unique artists who, who do share affinities among themselves. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, who, you know, who, who show us what this country can and should be perhaps, uh, and then who go into the, the most personal, uh, uh, you know, nooks and crannies of one's life and experience. So you've got the micro and the macro, I think, operating simultaneously uh, in, a, in a way that's that's really quite inspiring and rewarding. Uh, so my favorite part of the of the Dylan Center, uh, at least for now, um, was the Columbia Records Gallery. And I came back and I was just raving to people. I said, you go into these little sort of nooks. And with your audio device, you are treated to uh, sort of an immersion in a song that includes the handwritten lyrics, posters, photos, audio, studio recordings. And you go, um, you get deep inside these songs and sort of experience them in a way that I never have before as a fan, right? Because as a fan, you're not sitting there looking at multimedia while you're listening to your record on the record player. Um, some of the great ones, I guess I didn't realize this. I got really excited about now I'm coming back because you guys are going to rotate out those songs. We will you know, give us some time. We want to make sure that as many people as possible have the chance to delve in, as you say, to the writing, the recording, the producing, the performing, and often the, the second and third afterlives of, of these half dozen songs. But, you know, with with Dylan's um, collection here, I mean, there's so many directions we could go in, uh, so many stories we can tell around these songs. But I think we've started with six particularly strong ones. You can look at something like Chimes of Freedom, you know, from the early years. And and you can hear, as you mentioned, you have an audio guide with with headphones as a visitor. You can hear the old Irish ballad uh, that Dylan let's say appropriated, others might use stolen, uh, stole the, you know, the, the melody from, but to segue from that old Irish ballad into Chimes of Freedom, I think is a real aha moment for a lot of, of visitors. You know, from very early on, Dylan, of course, is borrowing, uh, reappropriating both musically and lyrically, as we know, sometimes controversially so. You know, he, he purposefully titled a record in quotation marks, Love and Theft. Uh, so we could, you know, that's a whole other conversation we could right. have. But uh, you know, times of freedom, or you look at something like Joker Man with the 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 ten different iterations of lyrics, and on a touch screen you can scroll through the the ways in which phrases and what just even a particular word, how Dylan would change it as the song seems to have him in its grip, not even the other way around. It seems like the song is leading this mm -hmm. this dance. Uh, to 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 you know to demand just the right uh, literary reference or biblical allusion or or turn of phrase 
that works with Dylan's cadence and with the rasp and grit of his voice. I, I think these are um, unprecedented experiences for those of us who, you know, up to now have listened at home or have gone to concerts, but to see these handwritten lyrics, these rare photographs, uh, you know, Dylan sitting with James Baldwin, uh, you know, Dylan in a home movie on the film set of an auto premature film in Hawaii, just chatting away with John Wayne. You know, there's there's so many surprises like that um, in and around those six songs that I mentioned. I mean, just going into Like a Rolling Stone alone and and tracing what happened that day that Dylan famously went electric at the Newport Folk Festival. All of these artifacts now that heretofore were not available to us uh, just contextualize these songs and this body of work, I, I think in ways that are really, uh, you know, both delightful and profound and at times irreverent. This is after all the Joker man, if in fact he was referring to himself, maybe in one of those stanzas he was. Um, you know, this is, this is someone with a keen sense of humor and I, I'm pleased that we are looking at that aspect of Dylan too. You know, we take him so seriously and the work demands that, but there's a reverence here too. This is this is a jokester, a shapeshifter, and I totally. Think we've, we've managed to catch him from a variety of angles. Uh, so, and- so, so, so on that very point, though, before you move on, right? So, this show is about the tickle of existence, right? How do you grab it? How do you hold it? And for me, a huge part of my appreciation of Dylan has been not just the unbelievable artistry and scope and scale of the songs, but about the playfulness and the the fact that he is probably one of the most un... It's, it's, it's ridiculous to say that Dylan is underrated in any way, but I think his sense of humor is not something that people appreciate as much as I could. Certainly my wife, when I forced her to endure, you know, yet another tour through Duff's favorite Dylan things of the moment. Uh, she had no idea how funny he was. Um, how do you keep that, the sort of ticklishness, the thing, the sort of thing that he does, which, which makes the dedicated listener smile? How do you keep that in the center? I think it's just there. It's part and parcel of this man who, by his own admission, you know, quoting Walt Mittman, imagine getting away with that, uh, contains multitudes. You know, it's it's just always there. I mean, he can he can move from, you know, a, a, a turn of phrase that makes you question your entire existence to, uh, you know, just something delightfully off kilter or surreal. Uh, to me, there's aspects of, of the surrealist automatic writing in some of the um, you know, lyrics as, as finely crafted as they are, uh, you know, even something like subterranean homesick blues with its outpouring of puns. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's always been a playfulness there. Uh, it, it's, it's the masks that Dylan has worn often literally, you know, uh, caking his face with, with white makeup in the seventies during the, the Rolling Thunder review shows, you know, uh, even even titling a record self-portrait as if, ah, we're finally seeing the real Dylan. You know, this was 50 plus years ago already. You know, was that any more the quote unquote real Dylan than, than any of the records that had come before or after? Uh, you know, that, that record seemed almost 
deliberately to be a bit of a shambles anyway, you know, that, although mm-hmm. it's been reappraised in more recent years, I think with the bootleg release, uh, looking at it uh, anew. Um, so there's, there is humor there. And I think you see that in, in aspects of this, of the displays, you know, we, we've got rare film footage of Dylan, both on stage and off. Uh, and, uh, you know, with, with ready with a quip, I mean, of course, his his interactions with journalists are well known, and he talks here in one segment that we have in in the immersive film experience. Uh, you know about look if if journalists are are insisting on asking such preposterous questions as what does this mean, what does that mean? You know, in a sense, trying to pin Dylan down. You know, he's he's going to meet them with an equal level of uh, of nonchalant absurdity. Uh, so I, th- I think it's there uh, for visitors to view and, and discover. It's it's one of so many different aspects of this uh, of this very multifaceted artist. So um, on that on that same note, there was a lot of talk on the opening weekend about the center um, being not just about Dylan per se, but about the creative instinct uh, and the creative impulse of which he's such a like staggeringly incomparable example. Um, so t- can you talk about, you know, how you think about highlighting creativity itself, like using Dylan as your medium? Absolutely. So he is for us the, you know, exemplar of fearless creativity of going, I don't know if he thinks in terms of the muse, but, you know, perhaps we can use that as a short term for, uh, you know, just, following your own instincts, going where the work takes you, going where your own interests take you. And it seems to us that, uh, you know, Dylan truly, unlike any of his contemporaries, I mean, there are, um, you know, we could talk about endlessly creative musicians, um, uh, but he has set the template for so many people in just doing the work that you need and want to do. Uh, and if you lose audiences along the way, well, so be it. You know, uh, you think about the born again years and and people being so up in arms about that. Uh, you know, these things have ebbed and flowed throughout Dylan's decades. Uh, but he has not seemed overly concerned with what we all think. He is doing his own thing. And I would love to think that visitors are coming in uh, and, and tapping into that own instinct. You know, so this is, of course, a common, uh, you know, uh, commonly discussed idea that we all unlearn how to be artistic and creative and open. You know, we we apply ourselves to this job of being an, an adult and, and there are ideas of what that's supposed to entail. You know, fortunately, not everyone unlearns it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, and, and, thanks, school system. Pre- precisely. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, when I'm generalizing, but but look, we get caught up in the in the you know, the, the trials and tribulations of, of daily life and its maddening distractions. If you're lucky, you find work that's meaningful. And I certainly count myself in that camp. Uh, and, and, you know, and then you try to surround yourself with what gives you meaning. That's people, that's art, uh, your loved ones, your loved music. Uh, and, um, and Dylan represents all of that for us. And, and, you know, if, if uh, I'm more inspired to, you know, pick up that half-written novel that's buried in the bottom desk drawer, if someone walks in and realizes, you know, they haven't danced in years, uh, we have a typewriter here in the reading alcove and people are sitting down and typing out poems, they're leaving messages on the chalk wall, they're rearranging 
uh, magnets uh, that a few hundred that have uh, words and phrases from Dylan's songs. And those are being rearranged hourly and daily by visitors into new lyrics and new messages. Uh, in all these ways, I, I hope that we're instilling the idea that, uh, you know, creativity can and should be at the core of, 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 of our existence. Um, we are a species that seems intent upon storytelling and image making. Uh, but, but it's true. Life gets in the way for so many of us uh, of, of paying attention to that side of life. And I, I do hope that the Dillon Center opens up those possibilities again. So, so what is your favorite, and I'm going to ask song in a second, so the, I'm not asking song. What's your favorite current Dylan tickle? Like, what have you been exploring that uh, you either didn't know about or that's giving you like a renewed um, uh, thrill in terms of the center or the stuff in the archives there? I went back recently to In the Summertime, uh, which is from the um, Shot of Love album, uh, I, you know, I contended with the Tulsa summer for the first time, you know, in San Francisco, even on the hottest day, you bring a sweater because by, by the end of whatever you're doing, you're going to need layers. This has been an intense, uh, you know, couple months of 100 plus degrees, uh, almost daily there for a while. And, uh, you know, it didn't stop me from doing anything, but uh, boy, it's it's intense. And, uh, you know, so you think about summertime songs. And uh, I, I went back to Shot of Love, which I had sort of neglected for a while. And I realized again, what a just lovely song that is. Uh, and, and it's just got this, these great sort of slapdash harmonica solos. Uh, it fades in and out quickly in, in a way like summer itself. Uh, and, and so that, that brought me joy and, and some, some coolness, uh, <laughs> both in temperature and in temperament. Uh, I'd say, uh, for uh, July and August here in Tulsa. And you guys have had some, I follow you on Instagram, I guess you've had a steady stream of uh, uh, famous musicians in their own right uh, coming through to pay homage. Well, you mentioned our opening weekend, and look, we set the bar pretty high for ourselves um, uh, to have Mavis Staples here, first of all, who walked into the center, you know, uh, Dylan proposed to Mavis Staples uh, back in the day uh, and she turned him down, uh, but they remained friendly. They've toured together. You know, she's a legend in her own right. And, and for Mavis Staples to walk in and look around and just with a big smile on her face, just say, Oh, Bobby, like that. Like, you know, I don't know if anyone else gets away with calling. Mr. Maybe Dylan. I should have said yes. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. You're quite fetching. Uh, and, you know, to make Mavis Staples uh, happy and proud, it's like, okay, we can close up now. Our job is done. But, you know, that was just the start of that extraordinary weekend. Patty Smith, just magisterial at this point. I mean, it, you know, her command of the stage and the room and everything she carries with her, her history and her you know, closeness with, with Dylan. Uh, of course she won and accepted the Nobel prize on his behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she, she was just, uh, enormously captivating on stage and then Elvis the next night. So, you know, if I have, a uh, you know, a, a, someone on par with Dylan for me, since I was 10 years old, it's been Elvis Costello, uh, and, and to have him here, uh, you know, surreal and, and extraordinary. 
Uh, and, and yes, all, I mean, Chris Hillman was here six weeks ago. I mean, to see the founding member of the birds staring at the tambourine that inspired the, Dylan to write Mr. Tambourine Man, mm -hmm. to just share that moment with Chris Hillman, uh, you know, who founded what we know of as country rock through the birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers was really, really special. So there, yes, I mean, this look, it's a perk of the job. It's wonderful to, to meet one's, uh, you know, musical heroes and, uh, and, and, and converse with them. And you've got Dylan in common, you know, because we're all fans. So, you know, there's always a starting point for the conversation, even with someone who you might otherwise feel somewhat intimidated by, uh, because you've had a one-way relationship with them as a listener. Uh, but, you know, suddenly you're just talking about, you know, uh, you know, these are people who might have played with him and I've only listened, but at least you've got a common denominator there. So it, it, it's really lovely to to have those conversations. And, but, but you know, equally, if not more so, to talk to people flying in from France or Turkey, uh, you know, making the pilgrimage, uh, hardcore fans who just couldn't wait to get here, to hear their stories, to talk to this lovely guy from Brazil a couple of weeks ago who's a singer-songwriter of renown uh, in Brazil. And, and connects his own work to Dylan's lineage. You know, the, these are enormously uh, satisfying conversations and interactions to have. Wow, wow. Um, the and I get one of the last things I was thinking of saying is, oh, first of all, I forgot to mention this. I got a uh, Christmas in the Heart um, Christmas tree ornament. That's Terrific. I got it from your store. It's a wonderful store there. Um, one thing I did notice about um, the center, it's. It's less, um, there's not a bunch of, uh, you know, in the, in the song gallery, there's a sort of immersive posters and other things you look at, but it's not, it's not like a museum that's like full of a shirt that Dylan wore once or the boots he wore on that album cover. It's more idea based. Clearly True. that's on purpose, right? Yes. You know, there is memorabilia. I mean, we have the leather jacket he wore at the Newport Folk Festival, and he held on to that. We have the costume he wore in Masked and Anonymous, the, the wonderfully odd Larry Charles film uh, mm -hmm. in which Dylan plays a character named Jack Fate. Uh, so there, there is that stuff. And, you know, it's, I think it's really fun to see. It, it's a little more akin to maybe the Hard Rock Cafe experience. Right. And, and that's great. Wow. Little Steven's guitar. I mean, that, you know, it's cool stuff to see. But admittedly, we are trying to do something a little different, which is really contextualize the songs, the work, the artistic process. Um, so while we touch upon the biography and some of that memorabilia, it is, you're right, I think it's, it's more... And there's plenty of visual splendor, I would hope, uh, but but it is a, a center of ideas and of process, I'd say, as much as it is, uh, you know, a collection of of, of visual uh, imagery. Though, you know, there's knockout photographs and all kinds of stuff. Um, but but yes, we're we're more interested in the the how does he do it than the. Um, you know, it's not Graceland, in other words, and no, and no knock on that. You know, that's uh, these are all different experiences. And, uh, you know, we're just we're coming at it with some probably some different goals and uh, and mission driven uh, aspects of the story that we want to tell. And there's uh, like you said at the beginning, there's uh, you there's more than 100,000 items in the archive. There's a fraction of that on display. Uh, yes. Have you got a team of people who's just sitting there digging through stuff 24 seven looking for uh, what, what else they can find? 
We sure do. You know, it's a, an incredibly committed, uh, a, a bright group of colleagues. Uh, Mark Davidson, who's our uh, director and curator of archives. So much of this is his vision, really. He's intimately familiar with, uh, you know, the, these tens of thousands of, of items, be they physical or digital. Um, and so, yes, we, you know, it's, it's uh, a, a very fun part of the job. And, and a challenging part is thinking about um, how best to, uh, again, contextualize what we have in the collection and what sort of stories can we tell that shed light for visitors on, again, the creative process uh, or fill in the blanks of the Dylan story or add a new layer of meaning or suggest a new layer of meaning. Because uh, after all, there's no, there's no right way or one way to do this. Uh, you know, back to Dylan containing multitudes, uh, you know, track one, side one of, um, of Rough and Rowdy Ways, uh, hearkening all the way back to, to Whitman, uh, we just want to be open to the idea of, uh, of multifaceted work. And, and so with, with so much uh, material to draw from, uh, from the archives, I, I don't think we'll run out of stories to tell anytime soon. On top of that, of course, we're showcasing the work of other artists. So we have a rotating gallery uh, and uh, we've been uh, starting, I think appropriately, with uh, the photographs of Jerry Schatzberg. Um, right. who Dylan fans will know took the uh, cover image to Blonde on Blonde and so many other iconic images of Dylan in the 60s. So we have a wonderful Schatzberg exhibition through the end of this year. And come 2023, we've got many surprises in store uh, for, for other work that we will exhibit in dialogue with the Dylan material. All right. Well, you'll have me back. Uh, Terrific. Uh, thank you for your time, Stephen. This was a wonderful interview. And for listeners... Uh, it is simply a mind-blowing experience. You don't even have to be a huge fan uh, to really appreciate uh, what they've done out there, what you guys have done um, uh, putting the center together. It is um, the kind of thing you can go through several times over the course of one weekend, as um, which I did in May. So uh, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, we'll be back to see you. And, and hopefully some of our listeners will be out there too. Duff and Matt, I am tickled. Thank you so much. Cheers, Tim. Take care. What a great job! I would, uh, I would take it if they offered it to me, but they didn't. So uh, instead, it we have Steve Jenkins, and he sounds pretty happy there. I don't. He I don't sounds think pretty happy. It's going to be hard to push him out. He's not uh, doing any succession planning right now. Like, sorry, he's, he's there. He's right? bought a house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love the fact that he mentioned in the summertime uh, from the, from the um, Christian period, I mentioned every grain of sand and tickled. I love those three albums. There's slow train coming uh, saved and shot of love. And, uh, but the really amazing thing is how they've actually, I told you about this even before today, like where you go in and you sort of get an immersion in a song like nothing you've ever experienced before. Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't even matter that like for to be a huge Dylan fan or not, because you, you end up seeing how a song gets made. Mm -hmm. You see the handwritten stuff, the photos from the studio, the poster, the, 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 um, you know, practice recording, the other thing, and you sort of get a full sense of what 
um, a gigantic piece of art, even a single song is. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was interesting. He said there's also the immersive film experience. Did you did you watch that? Yeah. And and you just said immersion in a song. I mean, immersion seems to be a huge thing. It's always been you know, part of the museum experience or part but of that. They did it. This is a step up from, from anything you've seen. It's yeah. uh, so very, very thoughtful, but also just, you know, it works. You go in there with your little thing, your audio thing. And the next thing, you know, you've been standing in this little corner for 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, listening and looking and all that. Um, and uh, he's obviously a great ambassador for the mm-hmm. center, very excited uh, about his job. And um, uh, I'm going back. I, I just need them to rotate the songs out. As soon as I hear that that's happened, yeah. I'll be back in an instant. I would go. I would go for sure. It sounds really cool. I, and I, like, I, I do like this, this like move towards the, the immersion. I'll just say it again. I think it's really cool. And it seems to be, I mean, I don't know about like if you're, how much stuff's coming across your feed about immersive experiences, but they're oh, totally. all the, they're all the rage right now. You know, we're going to Denver this weekend and we're going to check out the meow wolf down there. And I was looking just things to do in Denver and it's like immersive King Tut immersive Van Gogh. It's like you everywhere right. you go, there's some kind of, immersion this, isn't, this isn't that right? crazy. Like you're not yeah. moving around uh, as part of your immersion. Like each of the song things, you're basically standing looking you're almost yeah. in a phone booth, but you're basically surrounded by the entire history of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. The other reason to go is, as we were talking about, the Woody Guthrie Center is literally next door, and it is the same size uh, as the Dylan one, or close. And um, you could do a full day at either of them, so it it um, it's worth the trip. And the place where they did all the... Um, the concerts while we were there is like the um uh like the the historical venue of Tulsa it's called Kane's Ballroom and uh it's a great little venue so if you can time it with a uh, uh someone that you like playing there then you got your whole weekend they had uh we met our friend Kamran who we interviewed already Kamran V on the show i met Kamran um in Kane's ballroom, just in the back, sort of milling around at the Patty Smith show. And he happened to know the um, manager of Kane's ballroom who took us back into his office and they were showing us a bunch of posters and stuff from over the years, but they also had framed on the wall um, the sex pistols played there. And Johnny, well, I, Johnny, Sid Vicious, I think, not Johnny Rotten, punched, uh, as per the, their image, punched a hole in the wall in the dressing room. And they've left so it? They, no, they cut it out and framed. <laughs> so they have that framed yeah. on the wall in the manager's office. Anyway, I love it. it's a totally wonderful experience for anyone who wants a reason to go to Tulsa. And that arts district that it's in is, is up and coming to it. feels really vibrant. Uh, there were a bunch of street fairs while we were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally worth it. Um, on another note, I have one for you. All right. I, I came across this. This one may be a little too obvious, but, it, you know, um, it wasn't for me at the time. So here we are. And it's a classic. Uh, I've got one for you. And the, uh, the meanings contained in the word. 
an eyesore. Yeah, it, I mean it, that might be a little too obvious. I do get that one. It's a little too close. It, it may, makes maybe. your eyes sore to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I d- I don't know if I've ever necessarily thought of it as you know making like in, your in the eyes true- sore. No, no, I have. I've only thought of it. I think in that term, like that's an eyesore. Like I don't know if I if it is, you know, taken on its own new meaning as meaning as an eyesore for me in the classic sense of a of an I've got one for you where it's like oh I never thought about I sore before i think i had thought about that okay but my point is you look at something it's ugly we call it an eyesore i had never thought about the fact that we call it that because it makes your eye sore to look at it (laughs) yeah i I, i'm saying i think i have sorry all right right. (laughs) you know i've got a kind of 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 one for you just because you know in 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 preparation for this uh you know speaking with steve and i sort of thought about you know rolling rolling stone I was like, you know, the band, the magazine and the Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone. I was like, they must have some kind of common provenance. And, uh-huh. you know, as, as it turns out, you know, they th- I guess they could all be attributed to the, you know, the old proverb, a Rolling Stone gathers no moss. Right. But what I didn't realize is that there was also a 1950 Muddy Waters song called Rolling Stone, which has been attributed to potentially... All three of those. Okay. okay. Although it is a source of great debate as well. So, well, it would make sense for the stone for the Rolling Stones being named after that because they're a blues band. Yeah. It would make sense for Dylan because Americana, right? And it's in his, um, the magazine would be the only, you know, who we need to ask is our friend Joe Hagen, who wrote a biography of Jan Wenner, uh, which is in this house somewhere. The answer to the magazine is probably in there. I I, I had even noticed though it, it noted it, it it is a source of debate whether whether uh, particularly oh. the magazine name whether the okay. magazine was named after the the muddy water song or just the proverb. But anyway, there so we go. We'll have to leave that one to the winds of time. Someone might or might <laughs> not ever figure it out. Uh, I think we're going to do a two for today. Uh, we definitely have to ask, um, Marguerite about Bob Dylan cause she's endured him her whole life. Endured. Right. right? I, I didn't <laughs> discover him till my teens. She's been fed a steady diet of Bob Dylan since, um, uh, basically she was born. Uh, so let's go see, um, uh, find out what Marguerite thinks about, uh, this great artist. Here we are back again with the star of everybody's favorite segment of this program. Hey, Marguerite. Hi. So I've made you listen to Bob Dylan since you were in the womb. Uh, Has it been an enjoyable experience for you? Tiring at some points, but otherwise he does have some good songs. Some good songs. What's your favorite song? Tangled Up in Blue. And how would you describe Bob Dylan's voice to someone? I don't know. It just sounds a lot older than the singer is like now. So he's an old man. You got that right. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Anytime. And now that we're back from that, we should also check in with the Sage of Sages, Joey Moss, who likewise uh, was not a huge Dylan fan uh, before meeting me. Uh, and now um, 
I think is one, but we'll let her speak for herself. What would Joey say about Bob Dylan? So here we are with the Sage of Sages, Joel Moss. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Joey. Thank you, Duff. I'm happy to be here. So we're here talking about another sage today, Bob Dylan. And uh, I think I'd put it this way. Before uh, we were involved, you were what one might refer to as a casual Bob Dylan fan. (laughs) Uh, Didn't, uh, you know, didn't know him that well. Um, And since then, you endured the uh, indoctrination. How has uh, that whole thing played out for you? I haven't endured it. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the educational process, I have to say. So I was drawn to Bob Dylan when I moved to Greenwich Village and lived on Jones Street where he shot the cover of which album? Freewheeling, I think it was. Um, so I've I've really enjoyed it and I've gotten to um there's a whole a whole depth to it that I didn't know existed. I saw it as music and I liked it and it appealed to me, but I didn't realize that he was uh, channeling something greater. What's your favorite Bob Dylan song? Yeah, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I, it depends on the day because he's got so many. Um, you know, Lay Lady Lay is easy. Uh, Tangled Up in Blue, Joker Man, Brownsville Girl. Like, I, you know, it depends. Brownsville Girl, that's an insider song. Nice call. <laughs> my education is not yet complete but it's getting there <laughs> we've seen him live several times what do you think about him live i think he's amazing it's a it's every single song is reworked um and so it's sort of mind-blowing it's um yeah he's he's fantastic did you not even notice my bob project i dropped a little dylan in there did you notice that <laughs> where i can't tell you <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Joey. We'll have you back soon enough. Thank you, Duff. All right. And finally, uh, to close out today, um, uh, we had a full Oryabindo episode last week. uh, And we're going to close out with a a quote that um, I read a couple days ago from his commentary on something called the Kenna Upanishad that struck me as very Dylan-like. And it says the following. Only those who use their awakened self and enlightened powers to distinguish and discover that one and immortal in all existences, the all-originating self, the all-inhabiting Lord, can make the real passage which transcends life and death, can pass out of this mortal status, can press beyond and rise upward into a world-transcending immortality. I'm not sure that he was talking about the kind of immortality that Bob Dylan has uh, when he wrote that, but um, I think it applies either way. Um, uh, You got to use the powers at your disposal, folks, to create your own reality. And if you want an avatar of creativity, you should go to Tulsa and visit the Bob Dylan Center. He'll show you how it's done. Sorry, I was trying to pay attention there, but I was actually looking to see if there are direct flights from Toronto to Tulsa while you were talking. 
(laughs) (laughs) On that note, thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye. present moment traveling town to town the mystery of the motion right here right now right here right now whoa right here right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of The Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.